everyone. Welcome to the weekly spotlight from Diversity in Apps. My name is Kabir Seth. Thanks so much for joining us. So Diversity in Apps, for those of you who don't know, is a grassroots organization. Our mission is really to raise awareness and engage in research about the need for inclusive, equitable, and diverse children's media. This podcast is one of the ways we do that. Um, We highlight um, a few articles from our weekly newsletter that comes out usually every Sunday, and we talk about what's in the article, give a brief summary, sort of provide some opinion on it, and encourage you to go go out and read it and share it. Um, The other thing that we do on this podcast is we usually have a guest on, someone from the children's media industry, whether it's a producer, whether it's a researcher, um, who's talking about what they're up to, how it relates to diversity, um, why they think it's important for for the industry, etc. So this week, we have a really special guest, uh, Raul Gutierrez, sat down with me on Friday, and we talked all about Tiny Bop, how Tiny Bop came to be, um, and so it was, it was a really enlightening conversation. Um, so this week, I'm going to talk about one article that's in, in the newsletter, but I, want, um, I wanted to get right to um, the conversation I had with Raul, so... Um, so we'll jump to that. But first, let's talk about the first article. So the first article um, this week is from The Atlantic Magazine. It's called A Workplace Diversity Dilemma by Buri Lam. And what it talks about is a professor, David Heckman, um, at the University of Colorado, the, the School of Business there. And what he, some research that he has been doing um, along with the University of Singapore and the University of Texas was basically looking at office dynamics, specifically the idea of how um, executives were sort of judged based on a set of criteria that sort of could um, lend itself to um, a commitment to diversity. So they basically came up with a framework, this idea of um, understanding and respecting different culture, valuing working with a diverse group, etc. And they looked at the peer reports for executives, about 350 executives across 26 industries. And, you know, they, they started to look for how, you know, this type of behavior within the peer reports and then how it was perceived. And what they found was that women, white women and non-white executives who valued diversity, so basically showed examples of, of this behavior, were actually judged to be less confident, uh, competent, and having um, were judged to have basically got a lower performance score. But white male executives who, were pr- who promoted diversity actually got um, better ratings, so they, you know, they showed some level of this behavior. So, um, and then, you know, whether or not they, um, they showed a commitment to diversity, they were considered competent. So what this, they did a couple studies sort of in, in a couple different ways to, to, um, to sort of see what the outcome would be. And it was, you know, genuinely concerning. Basically what it said was that the only group that was really um, able to promote diversity without then um, facing a backlash um, on their performance reviews were white males. 
So, um, you know, what, what Heckman was, was um, pointing out was that, or what he believed really the conclusion was, is that, um, you know, white men have a normal, legitimate, and expected sort of um, status. So what they do, whatever they do, is is therefore considered normal and legitimate, whereas um, non-white managers and white women don't have, um, you know, don't have that social status. So it was, um, it's a really interesting article and, and obviously a bit, a bit depressing. Um, the article talks about how maybe the answer then is to actually have to put white, a, a white man in charge of the company's diversity efforts. But it's an interesting um, article and obviously an interesting dilemma because this idea that, you know, women should be helping women, it, it, you know, what this study shows or what these couple studies show is that actually doing that seemed to um, hinder or um impact their uh, judgment by their peers, even though a, a white male doing the same thing was, um, you know, was actually thought to then be, um, still be competent and, um, you know, was not, was not impacted in any negative way. So um, it's, like I said, it's an interesting dilemma and something that, um, you know, corporations need to sort of wrestle with and, and figure out. Now, normally I would um, talk about another article or two from our newsletter, but I'm just really excited to get to this conversation with Raul that I had on Friday. So um, definitely check out the rest of the newsletter. Um, some great pieces in there. Um, but I I think this conversation is, is, is really great. Um, so I just wanted to, to get right to it. So, as promised, everyone, it, it wouldn't just be my voice on the podcast this week. We have a very special guest. Uh, Raul Gutierrez is here. He is the founder and CEO of Tiny Bop. Um, if you don't know Tiny Bop, you must be living under a rock. But Tiny Bop creates beautiful digital apps for kids. Uh, their latest is Tiny Bop's Weather, which was selected as an editor's choice um, from the Apple App Store. So, Raul, thank you very much for being with me today. Thank you very much. So your your road to to Tiny Bop, um, from what I've read, has sort of been a, a roundabout path. You started out in Hollywood, sort of took a step back from that for a little while, then but you stayed close to the industry. You ran your own sort of movie analytics um, firm for a little while, and then you moved to the East Coast and you got started with an art startup during like the early days of flash sales. That's that, correct. Is that right? That, and that's then, sort of roughly correct. <laughs> <laughs> and then your sort of inspiration for Tiny Bop actually came from your son. So how did how did that happen? Tell me that story. I've always been interested in children's books okay, and in kids' media. The one thing that my parents really spoiled us with were books. And mm-hmm. so we didn't have a ton of toys. We had a lot of books. Right. And then also I grew up in between Mexico and Texas. With children's media, especially in Mexico, it was always a little bit weird. Like you would get, like we had all this Japanese stuff yeah. that was dubbed in Spanish. Okay. Um, <laughs> so my, like my favorite children's show is this show that like everybody in Mexico that's of my age 
No, it's called, it's called Cometo-san, which is, which in Mexico they called uh, Senorita Cometa, which is it's sort of like a Japanese bewitched. <laughs> wow. Uh, with these little animated characters. Okay. It was dubbed in Spanish. It was kind of weird. Right. And I always love the weirdness of, of children's books. And then when I had my own kids, you know, it was like they were my laboratory. Right, like, right. Uh, first of all, I had more kids' books than is this sort of reasonable. It's <laughs> like overflowing bookshelf, um, right? And, you know, I couldn't wait to, you know, expose them to all these cool books. So for me, books were really the, the starting point. Mm-hmm. And then my kids were, once we started to have iPhones and iPads in the house, my kids were really the first generation right. to see those or play with those as kids. My Oldest son was born in 2004. You know, just when he was getting cognizant of the world is when the first iPads uh, and iPhones came out. Instantly, they became his favorite toy. He called them the everything machine, which mm-hmm. is actually now the name of one of our right. products. Right. And it's because for him, they were. They were they were tools. They were toys. They were, they were passive entertainment, active entertainment. They did all these. At the point when I started Tiny Bop, I was actually sort of searching for an idea like many people who lead these kind of non-linear lives <laughs> um, I, I've done many things in my life sure. and I, I've started a whole bunch of things and and I knew I wanted to create a startup in mobile I didn't know exactly where I was looking at a whole bunch of other ideas that had nothing to do with kid stuff mm-hmm. my kid who was who was he was in, like about to have his kindergarten birthday came to me and he asked if he could trade his birthday party for an iPhone. To me, that just floored me because right. like if you know anything about at that age <laughs> about kindergartners, the birthday party is like the centerpiece of the year. You know, it's right. the way that they they if they're angry at a friend, they'll say you're not coming to my birthday party, <laughs> you know, the um, ultimate insult. So the fact that he was willing to, like, sell out all his friends, uh, <laughs> a different spin on it, yeah. which he really cared about. He really loved his friends. So the fact that he was willing to sell out all his friends for this device. Right. I just knew it had a lot of power over him. And I wanted to understand it because I, as a parent, especially as like. My wife and I call ourselves people of the book, not so much in a religious sense, but just because our house is, we're worried that it's going to collapse because right. of all the books we have. Right. Um, that I was kind of threatened by the, the, the screen, mm-hmm. uh, especially in context of kids. I just started deciding, I, I realized it was important and I wanted to understand it. And so not so much as a business thing or anything. I just wanted to understand what my kid was doing. What's and the appeal? Why was it so powerful for him? Right. What was the thing that was that gave it this draw for him? And what I what I found ultimately was that it was it was the form. It's this incredible form because you're actually touching something, something's happening back. It's it's incredibly responsive. And many of the things that he was attracted to were tools. You mm-hmm. know, he liked taking pictures and making movies and so on. Many were games that were game games that were actually not designed for kids. They were designed for adults, like casual games. Right. And back in sort of 2009, 2010, the game space for kids, I found, was really, really thin. There were, there were a lot of apps that were designed around early numeracy and early literacy, which was fine and were great. But there were very few apps around a lot of the subjects that, that I was really interested in and right. that my kids were really interested in, 
uh, which were sort of more sciencey subjects about the world. And the more I thought about it, and the more I thought about sort of my own childhood, like I grew up in a small East Texas town that's not known for anything good. <laughs> and, and, so, you get back there often? <laughs> not so much. I mean, it's a town split by train tracks into black and white. Sure. My dad was from Mexico. My mom was from New York. I was called the wetback Yankee. <laughs> that was like, that was my right. teachers called me that in right. school. I mean, we were one of the last federally desegregated school districts in the country. I mean, it was it was a racially polarized, like, kind of backwards place. And it's changed a lot. <laughs> Things have changed and gotten sure. much better. But back then, it was really isolated. And it was sort of like this island. And I always thought of it as this island, instead of being surrounded by water, it was surrounded by trees. Mm -hmm. And it was also, it was isolated in that we had one channel on the television. And most mornings, it was just farm and ranch news with a guy with a big cowboy hat. <laughs> um, the radio was sort of country radio. There was no cable television. It was it was isolated. There right. were no bookstores. Right. There were you didn't have access to the outside world, and so for me, my escape was the library. I see. And I would go to the library, and I would go to the children's section, and they had sets of children's encyclopedias that 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 essentially gave you context for the world. Right. And the Childcraft Library. They had one book on space and one book on mammals and one book on dinosaurs. And through reading my way through that library, serendipitously, I sort of discovered what I was interested in. I discovered that there was a whole other world that was uh, outside, outside. Of, of where I was living. It gave me some understanding of that world. Right. In Mexico, I spent a lot of time in Mexico, too, with my grandparents. And it was another kind of island in that it was uh, my grandparents lived in Monterey, which is a big city, but we often would, in the summer, we'd go out to their ranch, which was in the middle of nowhere. And so then you were just cut off from everything. And 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 what I realized with, with iPhone and iPad was that Apple and Google have created like these amazing distribution systems that can reach everywhere. There was this way in which you could create content that could sort of reach out into all those little islands. Right, those kids that, who, are, who are in those isolated those islands. Those kids that yeah. are sort of out there everywhere. Right. And the internet largely performs the same function. I mean, the internet sort of connects people to all these things. But the internet's a horrible interface for a six-year-old. Right. You know, cool. yeah. the, the thing about the internet is you kind of have to know what you're looking for. Mm -hmm. And you have to sort of be motivated for a subject. The thing about the uh, a series of apps that is very affordable and that, that we try to make even more affordable to schools is that parent buys the whole series and they have this set of apps that, that explains the world. It's that same serendipitous... Yeah. It's not exactly an encyclopedia, but it's a way to understand these various subjects. Right. And so from the beginning, my goal was I, I wanted to build apps that covered these subjects that my kids were interested in. I wanted to make them as beautiful as these children's books that I'd always loved. And as weird. The ch childhood's weird. Yeah. The way yeah. that children see the world is, is, is a little strange. There was so much children's media that is just extremely straightforward and it's it's like it's the bright colors and like the cute character and and that's not necessarily how kids see the world i 
wanted each app to have this maybe touch of strangeness, strangeness to it. Sort of little by little, we, we came up with this idea for our company. From the beginning, the big, the big ideas were that we wanted to be inclusive because we wanted to reach these islands of people. And, and you can be in an island in a big city just if you come from a bad economic situation in which you know, maybe you don't have a house full of books. That said, the iPhones and iPads are, are fairly universal. By, by 2018, it's predicted that virtually every adult on Earth is going to have a smartphone in their pocket. Right. And so our question is, how do we, at a very low price, provide a lot of great quality media? And then our next challenge, of course, is to like, get people to actually download it, give away to schools, and, sure, and, sure. And, and so on and so on. So when you're, you touched on this a little bit, um, you know, you looked at sort of the, back in 2010, what the, um, what kids apps look like. Mm -hmm. And your design philosophies, as I think you've said it more than once, is sort of designed for quiet as opposed to designing with sort of gamification or badges and, and what, so what sort of made you, was that as a result of research? Obviously, you had your children as your first lab rats, but was that? Part of it was, was it was that idea of, like, I, I started asking myself, why does screen time really bother me so much as a parent? And it's because I would see that with many things that were so-called kids' apps, that they were designed to essentially overstimulate kids. Mm-hmm. They were using what are essentially gambling algorithms or ga- uh, gaming loops that encourage you know, you have to hit the button. It's like this Pavlovian uh, loop that it leads kids really jangled. I mean, mm-hmm. kids, especially at that age, they every parent knows that they can be overstimulated. And when a kid is overstimulated, they're often like kind of foul-tempered, in a bad mood, and, and you can't like take the, it away. The yeah. minute you take the iPad away, then suddenly they're you know they're just like awful. Right. And so, I wanted to do the opposite. I wanted to do what a good book does and what a good science experiment does. Um, we use the, the term of art, it's not our term, uh, but it, it, we wanted to create explorable explanations. Each app is essentially a working model of the thing. It, in the, we have two series. Each app in yeah. the Explorer's Library is essentially a working model of the thing that we're trying to show. So the human body, it's a little model of the body. Right. You feed it, you know, food goes in one end, food right. comes out you the other end. You tap the eye. Um, yeah. You tap the eye and we Blink. use the camera to show how it works. It blinks. But it's accurate. It's not dumbed down for kids. Right. You know, if you turn on the labels in our kids' app, there are medical schools that are using the app as a way to have people learn various parts of the body. So we don't dumb things down. They're accurate. Our Simple Machines app, all those like little interactions with the little six simple machines, yeah. they're all, the physics are right. Yeah, I we know. I lo- do it with my son, the bicycle one. I lo- he loves that one. So, so we spent a lot of time to, to like make sure that the physics were the correct physics. Right. The, the hope is that in creating this, this quiet experience, one that doesn't have a soundtrack that's kind of running behind it, that doesn't have this this sort of gamification loop that you will slow kids down enough so they want to explore. And that's where the slight touch of weirdness comes mm-hmm. in. It's because, you know, we have to give kids a reason to explore these things. We, we have a weather app. 
And a lot of weather stuff, it's a sunny day, it's a cloudy day. You know, how do you show that in an interesting way? We have these strange people that populate this land that have like right. antlers, you know, for no particular reason <laughs> other than it just creates this mood that, that's mysterious and that, that, that draws kids in. And I think that when we do our job, what happens is that the output of the apps is, is not that the kid sort of knows everything about the subject. It is that your child would ask you questions. We design our Explorers Library series so that children will ask questions. Right. We're not, we, we do, we hope that some of the answers are embedded in the interactions. You know, in our human body app, what's the most important thing about the skeletal system? Holds the body up. So if you remove the, the spine, they it falls collapse, down. Right. And, and the, hopefully that idea is embedded in that. But the real goal of that whole series is to start conversations between parents and teachers and kids. When we've done our job, the kids are full of questions. And in fact, one of my favorite negative comments that we got on the App Store, so, uh, one, somebody gave us a one-star review. And this woman said, I leave my kid at home with the iPad and when I come home, she's just full of questions. I'm like, lady, this is... It's not a babysitter. <laughs> yeah, this is the point. <laughs> the point is I want you to talk to your kids. And so with that series, that's that's the, the goal. We have this whole other series. The digital toy. Digital toy series. Each of those apps in that series are a construction kit. The idea there is it's it was the anti-Legos. Yeah, so. I know. You've gotten a little flack for this. Yeah, and well, and and you know, I guess any, you didn't mean to take a shot directly at Lego. It's just no, I did, I did. Like modern Legos. Oh, okay, uh, I are, should say are, only Lego. Yeah. I, first of all, I love Lego. I love a lot of things about Lego, but a lot of the way that modern Legos are sold is as a disassembled toy. Right. That kids follow instructions and they get to a single endpoint and they put it on their shelf and, and then sort done. of gradually it falls apart. And then, you know, all the pieces go the into a bin and they lost the instructions and it's done. And, they, and then you buy the next one. Legos, when I was a kid, were blocks. And I think this is why Minecraft is so successful. I mean, blocks are sort of the ultimate. Any, you know, if you have sort of blocks that can kind of be interchanged and built into anything, all you need is a little bit of a context. And if you have, here in the office, we have square Lego blocks. And kids come over and they're like, well, I don't know what to do with them. Because they're the modern kids that have only... <laughs> you know, known that you have to follow the instructions. Right, where are the instructions? And I'll say, well, build a zoo. And a lot of times there's this, like, slight moment of confusion, and then there's quiet, and then you come back, and there's this, like, beautiful little zoo, and they feel really proud of it. Right. Um, well, that's basically what Digital Toys is. Every app in that series is a construction kit built around a context. So the first one's a robot factory. You have a whole bunch of robot parts. They all are autonomous. You have, like, spider legs and humanoid legs right. and uh, all sorts of, like, slithery legs or whatever. And you put them on bodies. But we're not telling you how to do it. The kid's creating their own narrative. And if we've done our job right, at the end of that app, the kid is going to have a story and a name that's something that we didn't imagine. Mm -hmm. That's something that's com completely, like, out of our our experience. And we were just in a, in a class deep in Brooklyn and, and Bensonhurst the other day, and the teacher is using it in our kindergarten as a storytelling and, and, and as part of their storytelling and poem uh, workshop. And basically, each kid in the class created a robot, and then she asked them to tell the story. 
and the range of stories that the kids came out with was amazing right. because right. some the kids were avatars for themselves and some they were the parents and some they were some super or something or other that they had hoped they could be and we see the same thing in the office we have a great video where we just invited kids from brooklyn and we asked them what what their robots were and one kid's like Mike, mine's a robot butler you know he brings me food you know <laughs> <laughs> and, and there's this other little girl that was like my robot likes fancy hotels she likes cheese sandwiches to me those apps are successful when it's not something that's been created from our imagination it's something that the kids we've just given them the push and the context. Right. It's like the set of blocks and you say build a zoo and yeah. then they're they're building their own zoo. Right. So um, a couple questions. How do you, you, you've said this a couple times, we know we've done our job, right? How have you sort of measured these things? It sounds like you, you guys go into schools. We go into schools, each app we test in schools. We have mm-hmm. a, a range of, of local schools that we work with. Uh, we bring kids in here ads on Craigslist or, you know, school listservs or whatever. And we have, we do play testing in the office. Uh, I do informal testing because there are some things that happen in the office for kids sitting there and playing the app that are different than when you're at a birthday party and there's like 16 kids. Other I, I have a couple of magic iPads that have like every popular everything <laughs> on there and they're Minecraft and everything else. And then I put our apps on those pages. I see if they how long they're going to play our app, mm-hmm. how quickly they're going to switch to something else, uh, whether they keep coming back. There are many kids, especially kids that have only been used to these fast games. The first time they come to our game, our apps, they're they're a little disoriented. Sure. I don't know what to do. Yeah. We're not telling them what to do. Right. I would uh, imagine the, the way I've seen it when a kid has, has touched your app is the first question is usually, so now what do I do? Yeah. And... And I think it's almost like you like that. You expect that. and, and a- Absolutely. Yeah. And, I mean, you have to give them a reason to come back. But hopefully, usually it's, you know, the artwork or some small thing that even if they quit, they'll start and they'll quit the app because they don't know what to do, they'll, they'll think about it and then they'll come back. Yeah. Once they come back, then you start to see these kind of long explorations. They'll dig into it a little yeah. bit more. Oh, and we have we have incredible. If you look at our engagement time over months, and like I think for a standard educational app, it's thirty day retention rate, which means like right. how often they come back after thirty days is like lower than ten percent. We're much 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 better yeah. than that. So yeah. uh, you know we have one year retention rate that's above ten percent. Right. 10%. right. So. Yeah. So uh, you talked about the Explorer series and the, and the digital toys. Just to go back to the Explorer series, you started with a specific like you sort of sort of started with human body. And then and that was an actual choice, right? You wanted to sort of start the kid, start with themselves. With themselves, yeah. Right, and then sort of build. Yeah, and build so out. it's, we had the game plan for three series built out before we touched a line of code. And we had, so far, every title that we've worked on, like, mapped out. Mm-hmm. For that series, it's not infinite. I mean, we'll, we have, like, sort of 25 apps and it's not rocket science like we're gonna do a space app we're gonna do a you know right uh it's it's each thing is just a subject that is important to kids everywhere and they're big subjects i think by the time we're finished that explores library series will cover every major science and some social studies subjects that are covered 
K through six. Okay. We think it'll be an incredible resource for parents and for schools. Yeah. Our digital toy series is a little more sort of infinite, but only in that we only so far as the ideas are worthy of the series. Like we mm-hmm. wouldn't build something just to build something. Sure. Uh, and then we have a third series plan that's still secret, but I was going to say, are we going to make some news here? Yeah, it's okay. going to be great too. I'm excited. All right. And so, you know, when when you talk about Tiny Bop overall, from what I read, you guys are 70% women. There's a ton of languages spoken in in the office. Diversity is a is a big focus for you. It's it's something you've talked about on panels. You've, you know, contributed to to articles written about it. Why why is it something that's that's important to you? Well, I think first and foremost, it's good business. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, and I, I think that's that's something that, like, it's crazy to me that not everybody's focused on diversity because, like, why would you give away uh, giant portions of your market? Like, we think that the subjects that we're covering are universal. Sure. Every kid needs to learn about their body. Every kid needs to learn about weather. Every kid needs to learn about the earth, you know, and so Plans, on and so et cetera, on. Yeah. Why would we block out whole categories of, of kids? So first and foremost, it's that. But also, politically, we have a diverse office. I myself, if you were sitting here looking at me, you might think, this is the whitest Mexican I've ever seen. But, <laughs> but I grew up in this very mixed family. So my Mexican family comes in all shapes and sizes and colors. And, and there are people that are lighter than me and that are incredibly dark. I grew up in a, in a town that was very racially split. And there were real economic differences between the two sides of town. Part of it is wanting to bridge those gaps. I know that Latinos, just as a group, and Mexicans in particular, consume more media on their smartphones per capita than white kids. And so why shouldn't that be great? You know, and why shouldn't we appeal to those groups? And there's, I think, at the start of of, of appealing to a wide group of people is having voices at the table. So if we had, if we were sort of a standard tech company that was like 90% guys, there were a lot of, there would be a lot of things that wouldn't happen. Because we're more than half women, a lot of our apps appeal to girls and women in ways that, that might not have if those voices hadn't been at the table. Right. And so when we designed a robot app, this is stereotype, is that robots are something that only boys, boys are interested boys. in. Yeah. We tested our apps and we changed the artwork until girls that were playing with the app called their robot she. It was really important to us. Mm-hmm. We also made sure that if there was an African-American kid or there was a Latino kid or there was a kid from Russia or wherever, that they would build robots and they would think that it was them. And part of it is by giving the kids choices and giving allowing them to color the robots in different ways and put their own voices into it. So that's it's a core value. Right. We don't always succeed. Like in our human body app, partially because of the sort of design of the app, we have four body outlines. Mm-hmm. And so with those four body outlines, we wanted to cover a range of kids. And so we wanted to cover African-American kids and Latino kids and white kids. And, and obviously that's impossible with four outlines. But I think we did a pretty good job. Like right. if you, like African American kids like see themselves in that app and they think that the one of the avatars is is somebody that they're familiar with and 
And we, we found that across the board, but there's still edge cases. That we, we got a, um, a message from a woman the other day that was very angry at us because she said that my son is a gender non-normative kid. He has long hair, he, he dresses as a female, but he is male, right. and, and we have in the Human Body app the one part of the, the app that is, is sort of not included that you can purchase separately is the urogenital system. Right. And we have the boys' parts matched to the boys' body. For that kid, she was upset with us. Yeah. Like, these are hard problems. Sure. You know, sure. There, there's, there's always limitations in terms of what you can do. But we've gotten better at allowing kids to customize things. So now instead of maybe presenting kids with avatars, we'll let them choose their own a little more. Mm-hmm. And so there's an app coming out in two weeks called the Infinite Arcade. It's a, it's a new app that allows kids to build their own little video games. Nice. We have this pretty elaborate avatar creation. Mm-hmm. Kids can really kind of create somebody. Man, that everything, yeah. They can switch colors and hairstyles. and Right. right. So it sounds like, like you said, you're never going to get it perfect. There's There's going to be edge cases. There's going to be... Um, feedback, but it sounds like you guys take that feedback and sort of, rather than getting defensive about it, you sort of, how do we make this better or how do we do it better? We want to appeal to as many people as possible. Our office is also not sort of a perfect mirror of society either. I mean, we we are more than half women, which I think is great. And we're very diverse and many of us come from, we're born in different places and speak different languages at home. But we could still definitely be more diverse. And there's also socioeconomic diversity. Mm-hmm. It's it's like we definitely hear, again, many people here, parents were immigrants. We were sort of striving kids, you know, a lot of Ivy League kids in the office. There are other perspectives that ultimately, like my sort of platonic ideal of a company involves people that, that come from a wider range of backgrounds. Right. Because I think the more voices you have at the table, the more that you can sort of take those considerations into account. Absolutely. You know, that said, we try. Like, yeah. we, we, we go to a wide, wide range of schools, and we go to some of the best crazy private prep schools where it's the, the kids, kids of hedge around. fund kids, right. and we go to really tough Title I schools where the vast majority of the kids in the school are, are on school lunch, and, and the truth is that they see things differently. They, because of the range of experiences they have, because of the little islands that they're in, they see the information presented differently. So even something like the concept of a volcano or a, a, a desert might be foreign to a kid who has very limited experience right. that like lives in the city or lives in Arizona and you know and it's it's just yeah it's an impossible task really to to cover all cover those. everything yeah. But we want to we want to be accurate, we want to be engaging, and we want to sort of draw kids in as much as we can to to cover as as much of the the, the world as we can. Sure. So um, not to put you on the spot, but can you think of sort of because you you have sort of diverse voices at the table and you you focus on sort of building a company that is diverse, how that is how that sort of made a particular product better or created a certain detail that if we didn't have that voice in the room, it wouldn't, uh, you know, you wouldn't see that. We actually have it's the opposite problem sometimes. So we have this new app, uh, the, the Infinite Arcade app, and 
many of the primary designers on this app were women. Mm -hmm. And so when they had the avatar selection, it was like, it was a girl with a ponytail and they had shirts that had hearts on them. And, and I was the voice that was like, we gotta get some boy stuff in here too. (laughs) (laughs) You know, uh, that's sort of a a simple, silly example, but with, I think of the homes app. Well, so so with the homes app, uh, with the homes app, currently have four homes in there. We actually have artwork for another four uh, around the world. We chose a home in Yemen, yeah, which is not necessarily the most politically popular you know, destination these days uh, right. for Americans. Yemeni homes are amazing, though. Right. Like, Yemeni homes are like, I've been obsessed with them since I was a kid. I think I saw them in some kid's book. And my goal with that, my specific goal with, with choosing Yemen in particular, was that I've traveled a lot, seen what those homes look like. And the important thing about that app was to show kids where other kids sleep, how they eat, you know, where they go to the bathroom, like how do they live their daily lives. We don't show people in that app, we're right. just showing the homes. <clears throat> the kids, when they play with that app, especially kids of a certain age, imagine themselves in their home doing those things. Right. Is a five or a six year old going to put together that it's in Yemen and they're another, like, they're not going to understand all that, but maybe, just maybe, they might understand that those, that there are people that live in a very different way from them, but they're still kids who are playing, who are eating, who are sort of waking up every day, who are, who are people. Sure, sure. And I think the, the most important thing that we can do just as humans is to understand that, you know, we're all, there is no other. They are, there are people with other cultures, but they're just people like, you know, trying, trying to, to get through, 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 through the day. day. Right. And, and we, our sort of world might be as foreign as, as theirs is. Yeah. Um, there is a little bit of, of quiet social engineering. In sure, sure. So the, the long-term vision of, of Tiny Bob, sort of, you guys don't really call yourselves, I, I sometimes hesitate to call yourselves apps. You guys call yourselves really digital toys. And do you see yourself sort of moving into, away from the screen or into the physical world? It's it's absolutely part of the, the bigger game plan. Mm-hmm. So so we we don't call ourselves games because we're not games in, in any traditional no. sense. Uh, they're little sort of simulations. They are digital toys. The truth is many of the best toys are things that if you give them to they're not doing anything. It's right. a set of blocks. You know, the kid has to be active in order for the thing to 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 be something wonderful and to sort of transport that kid to another world. I think that's true for our apps, or at least I hope it's true. We have always looked at the apps as just the seed of everything else that we want to do. In the sort of next years, we've mapped out a plan that includes us making some physical toys. I've always wanted to do books. I'm yeah. you know, a person that like a book is sort of <laughs> right. my ultimate a- aspiration. Right. We've actually designed them. We're just kind of looking for the right partners there. I love to do video. Like mm-hmm. I came out of the film industry. And, right. and the making movies is a lot like starting a company it's 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 there's it's essentially a little startup each yeah. movie is like a little startup you start with an idea get a bunch of people together you make it story, you, know, yeah. you put it out you have to sell it I, i'd love to do video at some point i think that we have just started with schools mm-hmm. so over 
150,000 of our apps have been sold to educational institutions. We estimate that we are in at least 70,000 schools like around the world. More than half of our sales are abroad. So the U.S. is, is like actually less than 50% of our, our sales. So Europe is 30%. Asia is growing super fast. I think if you look at schools as a group, they are looking for solutions to problems. And our apps work particularly well with teachers because mm -hmm. we're not trying to replace curriculum. Right. A teacher, a first grade teacher teaching simple machines and a sixth grade teacher teaching simple machines can use the apps as models and they work equally well right. with a different set of curriculum. I do think that we could be a little better at helping teachers share curriculum that they've made uh, against the app sure. and at packaging stuff for schools. So we've just started, we're just now in the planning stages of, of sort of a major push to package our apps in a way that, that makes more sense for schools or that is easier for them to our apps are being brought into schools by individual teachers, mm -hmm. but we're not really selling them on the like the district level and things like that. And partially, it's because of how they're packaged. Right. So that's that's a that's a goal of ours. That's great. This this has been absolutely fantastic. Thank you so much. Oh, I, great! I really appreciate. I'm it. Always happy to talk about, <laughs> about Tiny Bob. Yeah. Um. And and thanks for letting us use this this great sound booth. Oh uh, yeah. Well, let's see what it sounds like. <laughs> Fair enough. All right. Thanks, everybody. Um, be sure to, uh, to listen to next week's.